Conclusion of episode 55 of No Challenges Remaining, hosted by Ben Rothenberg and Courtney Nguyen. Next name I have for you is Stan's buddy, Roger Federer. Mm, so Roger. Roger. I mean, obviously surprising that he would lose to a Tommy Robredo in the fourth round in straight sets. In straight. That was bad. That's bad. And, that and was it was ugly. kind of, yeah, it was a bad, bad, bad match. But, I mean, did any, I mean, I never thought that he was going to get past Rafa. So, at the end of the day, am I really shocked by the result of him going out that early? Not really. I am shocked by him losing in straight through Bredo. No, That's but, shocking. I know. But but I think that the, the most telling thing from that result was his press conference, where Roger wasn't prickly. It didn't seem to me. He, he he didn't seem to kind of have that defensiveness that he kind of, or that edge that he had at the Wimbledon post-Stakovsky loss or, you know, a lot of his other slam losses. He kind of just had this resignation of like, yep, I self-destructed. That's what I did. And that was kind of more telling of, of just that he was willing to admit it and acknowledge that this is a thing that happens with him Yeah, was, I think, at least a bit of a transition in, in kind of how Roger Federer talked about his career. I think it totally was a transition, but not only how he talked about it, but how everyone else did. This was suddenly, everybody was on the same page with Roger after this loss. It was like, yeah, this is over. Whatever this was for Roger. Yeah. I think the Stokowski loss, it's like, okay, you had this quarterfinal streak that was really, that showed that you could still be lingering at slams. They made the semis in Australia earlier this year, pushed Murray to five, even if it wasn't a great five. He's still relevant kind of factor in slams. And he gets blown out of the French by Sanga. He loses to Sikowski in a weird match at Wimbledon. And then this match was just a loss that would just never happen before. This is not the kind of match you would ever lose before in this fashion. And I think it's totally turned a new page. And it's where I think, I thought he could have had a couple more good slam runs in him in the past. But right now, something big has got to change for him. And I don't know. I don't know what he's, I think he's definitely in a bit of a uh, crossroads now. How he's going to, if he's going to make some change in his team or if he's going to try something new or different or keep being stubborn and stick with what he's doing now. It's a tough, uh, it's a a big moment for him in terms of how the rest of his career is going to go. But I think the stakes are pretty low because I don't know. I can't, it'd be hard for me to imagine him beating like a peak Rafa or a peak Murray or a peak Djokovic ever again. The way he's playing right now. Yeah, I mean, if if I'm Roger, I shut down my season. I do. I mean, I, I don't see necessarily what the benefit is to kind of play through the indoor hard courts. I mean, obviously as Basel and, and stuff like that, hometown tournament. But if I'm him, I, I really do shut it down. I, I take time to make sure that I'm healthy, which is which is a big issue. Make sure my back is healed. I, I take the time to go and experiment with equipment and, and larger rackets and all that stuff. And then I make my charge in 2014. And really that is kind of my Waterloo. If I, if I can't, if I take a, you know, a five month break and I can't make any dent within the first, you know, six months of the, the the 2014 season, then I start panicking. But right now I'm, I kind of, if I'm Roger, I kind of do have in the back of my mind, well, I've been injured different points and that injury never really get allowed me to train. And because I couldn't train, then I've obviously been rusty during tournaments, even if I'm healthy, you know, so take those excuses away dude like shut it down go train go get healthy and bring it in 2014 and then we'll talk but until then if he keeps playing through the the indoor season 
I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess that it would allow him to ostensibly stay within like maybe top eight and qualify for the for the the, the year in championships. But, you know, I mean, for him, it's got to be big, it's got to be big scheme. It's got to be big picture. See, honestly, I really want to be in the World Tour Championships in this sort of form and get to lose the two big three guys. Right. In run Robin. Right. And go home. Right. That doesn't sound great to me. No, it doesn't sound great. I, I say play Basel. And other than that, don't play anything else. Play Basel and then play some XOs. Yeah. Yeah, why not? Well, I wouldn't even say exos. I mean, I, I would say just shut it down and just focus on your physicality. Don't hop on planes, you know, re- recuperate. Be 100% to where, and put yourself in a position where you have no excuse so that you can actually gauge where your game is at next season. Because so long as you have excuses, the name that comes to mind to me is like a Venus. So long as she has excuses and cons- and, and not in a bad way, but like she does have excuses, you know, like mm-hmm. there, there are concerns about her, her, her physicality and her injuries and, you know, Sjogren's and all that sort of stuff. But so long as she has that, there will always kind of be this hope that things can get better. And sometimes maybe that hope is true and, and real and sometimes it's false. But with Roger, he doesn't have like this chronic thing that he can like point to and say, well... You know, that's the reason I lost. Like, he actually is in it's a position. the back, yeah. No, but, but I, mean, but I know, yeah. but I'm saying that he is in a position to try and get himself to where the back is not an issue as best he can. And then he can gauge what he can and cannot do from here on out. I, maybe I'm just too much of a pragmatist and a realist, but that would be what I would want to do. I would want to put myself in the best position to succeed. And if I failed, then that would be a referendum on where I'm at. All very logical. I try. Second to last men's name I'm going to give you is Richard Gasquet, the other semifinalist, who improved his record in fourth rounds of slams of this tournament to a much better two and fifteen. Two and fifteen, baby. He's on the comeback. No, I mean I think that it was a tremendous tournament for Richard. I think that for a long time he's been a bit of a punchline. Yeah, totally. With the two wins that he pulled out over Raonic. Ferrer, you know, that those were character building results for him. And, and it could be the case that he's a guy who was a childhood, a late blooming childhood prodigy. So, you know, he was a prodigy back then, but maybe he's going to find his game later in his career and then really settle into it. So I'm, I'm excited to see what he does, you know, in the fall and in, in the early part of 2014. It, he could completely bust. But I think that it was it was a great tournament for him and, and in, in a lot of ways, like really good for tennis to see this kid finally realize his potential. He's always been fairly popular with fans. He's always gotten pretty good crowds, Gasquet. At least what I've noticed, like out at Indian Wells and stuff, people like watching him. His game is attractive to people, even if his results or his t- playing style hasn't always, you know, been that impressive to me in terms of how defensive minded he'd been for a lot of the recent years question for you relating back to another guy who is more likely to make a slam final in 2014 Gasquet or Vavrinka? Ooh, I guess Vavrinka. And that's right. I, I mean, I think I think he's... I think Vavrinka has more of a chance of beating a big three guy. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. I mean, uh, I mean we saw that with Gasquet against Rafa. It just was brutal. So obviously draws and luck and all that stuff. But I, I guess I would say Vavrinka. I think that he's probably got a little bit less fear of the big result than than Gasquet. It's probably I think that's right. The last men's name I want to ask you about and goes into his whole tournament and things that arose around him is John Isner. Mm, bad luck for Isner. Bad luck. Explain. I think in a lot of ways he's been hosed this season. I mean, I think obviously the bad knee injury taking him out of the Australian Open and then 
you know, Wimbledon, just a freak knee injury, taking him out when he really could have made the fourth round or quarters in that tournament. Or semis. Or semis, you know. So that was a huge opportunity loss. And then here to, to kind of have the draw that he did. So, you know, to get Malfis in the second round and to get a Cole Schreiber in the third, like those are not easy opponents, you know, so, so that's tough. I mean, I think that kind of his explanation for why he kind of fell apart against Cole Schreiber was a bit, okay, like that he had kind of got way too amped and burned too much energy getting fired up after breaking Cole Schreiber in the fourth, that he just kind of lost all of his energy and just didn't have much left towards the end was a bit weird but you know I mean there's a lot of positives to make out of John I think the biggest thing is that he just has to win on foreign soil and there's no reason he shouldn't be able to do that Asia is very important for him yeah huge it's not make or break it's not make or break but it's a big opportunity for him to go out to do something like make a final in like Beijing I don't mean Shanghai I mean like Beijing like a 500 there maybe make quarters in Shanghai or something just Get yourself winning comparably to what you do in Australia, even in Asia. And then the indoor hard in Europe should be huge for him. But mostly what I want to talk about with Isner is about his second round match against Malfis, which we haven't talked about on the show yet since we haven't obviously done a show then, even though it was a big first week issue. It really was the biggest story of the first week, I think, a lot, was the reaction that uh, that match got and that Malfis had the majority of the crowd loudly on his side in that match mm-hmm. and Isner's how Isner tolerated that and or but acknowledged that it was disappointing for him and then tweeted <laughs> this fairly ridiculous tweet I think that was like um I can't wait to go back to the south hashtag God's country so Courtney what do you think of the heathenly New Yorkers rooting for Gail Malfis and what it says about John Isner and what it says about American tennis and that whole episode I think it was interesting. I thought it was very interesting. I don't think that it has anything to say about American tennis, and I don't even think that it has any bearing on John Isner. I think that I it, totally agree. I think that more so, it's America. And at the end of the day, Gael Malfis is a ridiculously entertaining tennis player. People root for him if you've traveled and if you've ever seen him in foreign countries, non-France. Like, like fans absolutely gravitate towards him. And if you don't respond, like, even as a writer or an objective party to, like, the style of tennis that he plays, like, you're dead inside, in my opinion. Like, he, yeah. he plays the game in a way that we want the game to be played. Like, this dynamic, exciting, athletic stupid you know kind of way and (laughs) and so like obviously he's just gonna get a crowd on its side especially when he is a you know b you know a the underdog b has an opportunity to force the match into five sets and and to give the crowd you know some you know more bang for their buck all these sorts of things night match night match all these sorts i mean you know like i I think i tweeted like i totally understand i think that john is absolutely in his his right not right, but it's understandable that he would be annoyed that an American crowd wasn't backing the number one American. But at the same time, like, this is America. This is why we're not France and we're not Australia and we're not Britain. And we don't go overboard and, like, go nuts over, like, a Daniel Evans. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is what we do, which is that, like, we see what the story is. We root for the guy that we think will provide us the best entertainment. And if that 
is against our patriotic duty, so be it. And I know that for myself, like personally, that's definitely happened before where like I root sometimes for national teams that are not my own simply because I like the way they play the game or whatever sport it is that they are, the personalities that they are in the sport that they they play. I don't really feel like just because I have a passport that has an eagle branded on the front that I'm supposed to like chant USA. Totally fair. I totally agree with that. And Isner did acknowledge that Monfils is like the only guy he could think of who would turn a crowd that way. It's it's more about Monfils than Isner, I think, totally. And I think Monfils is so disappointing in that (laughs) he is not like a top 10 guy because he'd be so good for the sport. So good. get Get his head together and combine this showmanship with actual win sometimes more just because i really he's incredible and it was so much fun being out there i got a chance to go out to a couple of the matches that were happening first week on armstrong israel feast duval stoser and uh venus versus jean jay and all three of them were just like really cool atmospheres out there and uh yeah isner disappointing year for him at the slams for sure no american man makes it to the fourth round of a slam at any point during the year like we said, Isner was a little bit snake that with injuries that came at some bad times. Query had a terrible year at the Slams. Query, a really disappointing year for him. His loss to Manorino was bad. 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 And then and then Smeechek came within a set of making the fourth round, which would have been ridiculous. Can I ask but, you a question? Yeah. Can you talk about Tim Smeechek a little bit? Okay. What, what do you want me to say? Just generally, just talk about his run. I know that you've spoken to him before, that not, oh, sure. you know, you're a big kind of supporter of the Smeech. You want him to do well. Talk about it. Talk about what that was all like. Smeechek, seeing Smeechek, who's like a guy who I'd, I think I first saw Smeechek, Indian Wells, and in like a battle, in like qualifying or something, and he absolutely destroyed Michael Russell. And he's just sort of like, I mean, people have seen him play all during this week. He's a little guy, but he hits the ball really hard. He's sort of like the Camilla Giorgi of the men's tour, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous statement and he uh yeah but he's like always been like a little bit of obviously well outside the spotlight he's uh, never broken the top 100 he got up to number one his goal has always been to break the top 100 earlier this year he got to number 101 and didn't get up into the top 100 he's gonna break and top so 100 just, now right nope really nope. no because he made second round last year oh. and also had qualifying points from last year because he was a qualifier last year uh. so he was a wild card this year so he gained a few points but not really and uh, he would have made top, like, 90 if he'd beaten Granoliers. But he goes out and served for the match, I believe it. No, he served, he was up 4-1 in the fifth, and then got broken, leveled at 4-all, was returning it up. Granoliers was serving to stay in it at 4-5, and Smichuk was a couple points away and lost. Anyway, it was just surreal seeing this guy who's, like, this, like, hasn't quite made it yet, but, like, t- typical journey person, as you would call him gender neutrally <laughs> having him play in front of this crowd that was like shouting like come on tim you're our last hope save us tim and it was just it was a weird weird set of circumstances to let him do that and uh he came really close and it was it was sad seeing him lose to granoliers and granoliers being very grunty and then granoliers going out and losing getting bageled twice by Djokovic in the next round so Smeech would never. <laughs> no, he might have. But <laughs> he, he very well might have gotten triple bagel by, by Djokovic, but that would have been fine. It would have been in the second week of a slam, and that'd be that'd be pretty cool for him. So I don't know. It was, just, it was one of those almost stories. It was like it was almost like a really cool story, and yeah. it didn't quite happen. Yep. So it was, I mean, it was cool having him just make. The, he never made the third round of a slam before, so it was his career best tournament. But it was a rough way to go out. So there you go. American tennis did not have its best year. It was a rough way to go out specifically because like then he had to like be what Bobby Reynolds was at Wimbledon. 
So, like, he had to, like, answer all the questions about, like, American shitty men's tennis. He was much more game for Oh, for it, sure. But, like, it's unfair to him. I mean, he personally had, like, a career run. And yet yes. he has to, like, lose and, and go into press and, like, answer all these questions about how, like, American men suck. Like, that's a bit discordant. <laughs> I think he handled it pretty well. I think people, I think the press were also really good at being, like, we know this is not your fault, Tim. Like, we get that, like, yeah. you're, like, the one left holding the check in this ridiculous circumstance of these 15 guys, American guys, who come to this tournament and play. He was very, like, very high on American tennis. He wasn't going to say anything bad about it. And he's like roommates with Isner right now and stuff. And he, so he knows the top guys pretty well. He's sort of a little bit like the Jamie Hampton of the men's side, I think. Where, like, oh, you're just trying to get me on the Tim like, Smechek train. I'm, I'm just dropping, I mean, you brought up Jamie Hampton the first two minutes of this show. <laughs> so I might as well bring her up now. Fair enough. Yeah, so I don't know. I think you saw like on Twitter, like all the other guys, all the other American players were like tweeting like, you know, come on, Tim, like Harrison, Hampton, Udan, everybody was like, God do this and he didn't quite do it but if that was if that was uh the peak of his year or his career even it was pretty cool being getting him to play in front of like seven thousand like dedicated people to him and on grandstand it was a cool atmosphere to be there even if it didn't quite work out fair enough so we're gonna try doing a lightning round of questions we didn't get to any questions earlier in the show but we'll just roll through a lot of them now here start off with number one from Ange, who says, is Serena's dress the worst dress ever to win a slam? Yes or no? Hmm. Off the top of my head, I'm going to say yes. I hated that thing. I think it was terrible. I terrible. liked it until the final. I liked I Serena. never liked it. I liked Serena's dress until the win. It was like it was a tablecloth. Yeah, sort of, no, like, the bottom I, was not great. I mean, Nike screwed up on the bottom, but I'm not willing to say that it's the worst ever. But in the wind, it was the worst ever. Like, that was It was horrible. non-functional. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Next question from Anand Ramaswamy. Given how well Rafa is playing, do you think Nole will ever win the French? Yes. Yes, I agree. That was quick. Yep. Next question, Matt McKenzie, who asked us, will 2014 bring a new Grand Slam winner on either the men's or women's side? I will say yes. I will say yes as well. But, okay, pick, so Ben. Pick up, pick up. Yeah, I was like, exactly. Yeah. Pick a side. Women. Yeah, women. <laughs> Could be both. I mean, if you if you give me the field on the men's side, will any of them win a slam? Maybe. I'll give them like a 40% chance right now of one of Burdich, Favrinka, Songa, Gasquet, Ronich, Isner, everybody. I think they yeah. have a shot. That's fair. Uh, on the women's side, I, I'm more likely to pick a Sloan or a, um, who else is there? Aga. Aga, sure. Uh, yeah, Lissiki I think those are. At Wimbledon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Next question. From Alyssa, who asks, what's your take on coaches for Sharapova and Stoser? Longer question, but I don't know what Marie's going to do. We'll see what she does. I think, I don't know if she's going to play again this year. Sam, I don't know either. I haven't heard anything about that. And probably be yeah. some Aussie. Exactly. And I haven't really heard anything. I think that Alicia Malik saying that Stozer needs to take a break, probably about right, to just kind of get her head on straight and really think about what she wants to do in the latter, por- latter part of her career. Um, what is she, 29 now, I think? So, you know getting up there and then with Sharapova that's just a roll of dice I mean she's a player who wants loyalty and and isn't one to like switch coaches all the time so that's why the the Connors thing was so shocking is just like how quickly it came and how seemingly incompatible their personalities were so we'll see with Sharapova but but I do think that she will appoint somebody before the beginning of next year all right Kunal Chowdhury asks us if Rafa has to choose between winning either Roland Garros or Wimbledon next year, which one do you think he'd pick? Roland Garros. I think so too. I think he did not enjoy losing there. Yeah. To Soderling. 
I think he did not that, enjoy that at all. I think that he takes great pride in the fact that he is the king of clay. That yeah. that you know, like it's not just like um okay on all surfaces. Like I am actually ridiculously dominant on one, and I would like to keep it that way. Next question from Keith, who asks us thoughts on the upside of the early twenties group of Halep, Kirstea, Georgie, and Cornet made many runs at the U.S. Open this summer. I will say, we haven't talked about her much on the show, but I think Alizé Cornet could totally be a top 10-ish player again, the way she was before. No! I think she's been very under the radar. You don't think so? No, I disagree. Top 10. Top 20, yes. Top 10, no. It's a top 10-ish. Like a top, like, top 12-ish, 13-ish person. I wouldn't even say that she's top 15. How about that? Okay. There we go. Halep, top 10, someday? Mm. I think so. I think she's got a Ronnie type upside. Sure, why not? She has an Ronnie type upside, except that she can't perform at the slams. Like her, her as good as her results are outside of the slams, like she has not gotten. She's been horrible at the slams. So until she fix, until she fixes that, no. Can she fix it? Maybe. I mean, the I mean, it, this is the balance that that top ten, you know, top fifteen players get, which is that like, yeah, you can go and run the table outside of the slams, but if you can't perform at the slams, like, it, you know, if you're exhausted by the time you get there. What's the point? So I don't... The thing with Halep that is my issue is that I actually don't consider her a particularly hungry player. I think that in a lot of ways, you know, being a top 20 player is pretty great for her and she might be content with that. So I'm not entirely on the Halep train in terms of being like a top tenner or to be a contender. I think it's way, I think it's way too early to say that. I think she hasn't been on the radar long enough to make that sort of judgment, but we'll see. Fair. No, it's fine. No, that's fine. I'm just saying that, like, as of right now, I just, she's not a person, she's not a player that, like, I consider to be a threat until I consider her to be a threat, if that makes sense. Next question comes from Kevin Smith, who asks us, what does Lena have to do to win another slam, compete with the top three? I think she needs to draw to break open. Yeah. I think she needs to avoid Serena and probably Maria, or she beat Maria in Australia, but I think she, avoiding Maria would not hurt. Same with, same with Azarenka. And uh, yeah, I think she, her time is running out. Time is running out. She just needs Serena not to be there. I think yeah. about against anyone else, I give her like a, a uh, you know, a 50-50 chance. And, and it's really about her being mentally strong enough and not panicking and not freaking out. But but she just, Serena just can't be there. And then Kevin also asks us, we know Petra has the potential. Why isn't she capitalized after 2011? And I actually meant to mention Petra, Petra when we were talking about going through the players. Because Petra's U.S. Open was not good at all. The way she went out is, is disturbing once again for her. Agreed. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I, I think I've said this on this podcast before. That I think that there are, and this is not based on anything. This is just based on the fact that she's gotten viruses you know so many times in advance of tournaments that that, that there's something kind of like there's got to be some sort of like physiological concern with her because she's just constantly getting sick and whether that means she just needs to take airborne all the time or like some sort of vitamin c tablet to like keep her immune system up whatever it is or gluten free or something or go gluten free or you know get that crazy you know allergy test that most of the people are, are getting these days to see if she has like food allergies there's something that is like inherently i think biologically wrong with her system and then hopefully she takes the opportunity to kind of figure that out because you know i think that we all know that this tour would be completely different if petra kvitova was a thing if she was 2011 petra kvitova it would change the landscape of, of of the tour and i think that in a lot of ways that's why people root for her to be good and then the fact that she kind of keeps suffering these really horrible losses and you know illnesses and all that is, is it's brutal absolutely her upside is incredible Next question comes from Tools, 
who asks us in a, in a well-written question, Mona Bartle don't dunk her. Where's that unfur? I thought she was going to be a thing, but she already looked over it by ready play. Mona Bartle, I think, lost risk at this tournament. Correct. Yeah, what is going on with Mona Bartle? Is she a huge letdown? Why anyone would would bet on Mona Bartle to do anything after the month of April is beyond me. Yeah. She does things from January, January, February, March are like her, her like that's her season, and then after that, like she chills, and not because she chills because she's like actively chilling, but like she just doesn't like do anything. She's never done anything. So like, what exactly is this expectation that we have for Mona Barthel, other than the fact that you watch her, and you know that if that game could be played over the course of a ten month season, it would be a top ten game. Agreed. Uh, Clayton Fields asks us, at what point will Serena start to decline? She is almost 32 years old. How much How much longer does Serena have in her as a top five player, do you think, Courtney? I'm flipping this back to you because I feel like basically this has been a and a of you to me, and you haven't answered any of these questions. So I'm throwing it back at you. At what point do you oh. think Serena will start to decline, Ben? She is almost 32 years old. Look at you pulling the reverse card out of your Uno hand. Well done. Mm-hmm. I will say... I don't know, arbitrary, let's say 2015. I think, she, I think 2014 will be awesome, be similar level, and then 2015, signs of age and rust will appear. But what the hell do I know? Who knows? you have any other answer to that? No, I mean, I, I would I would pretty much agree with that. I mean, I think that if Serena is winning, you know, slams after 2015, after she's 35, I would be pretty shocked. So that would put it at 2016, right? 2015, 2016? Yeah. So I would say two to three years. But yeah. what do we know? I mean, she could continue to defy all you know logic and continue to win do you want to ask me the next question as well i would love to do that the next question is from cl underscore fields on twitter why don't more wta players use drop shots and slices ben they seem to neutralize the big hitters in the women's game i'm not sure that many of them can hit very good drop shots and slices i think that's about it i'm not sure who else there is who should be doing it who isn't that what comes to mind for you that should be hitting droppers and slices but doesn't no i mean other than yeah. like everybody i mean you know what i mean like we i think that we would like for the women to kind of have a bit more variety and be willing to go for those shots as ben says but like not everybody can actually hit those shots really well and a lot of them have just been trained to just hit the crap out of the ball from the baseline to win rallies so i think drop shots happen a fair amount i think slices could definitely be more and there's so many more slices in the men's game, for sure. For sure. The drop shots, there are some people who use drop shots cleverly, who do it as a play, like, I'm going to bash, 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 knock you back, and then hit a drop like shot. Like That happens. Laura does that. Yeah. So, there you go. <laughs> You're pointing at a 19-year-old as the sole, like, you know, pillar to hold up your argument. I'm not saying there aren't more, but that's the first one that came to mind for me. <laughs> Fair enough. Next question from Kenneth Wu asks us, should U.S. Open speed up courts? Was there a hard court tournament that rewarded aggressive play but allowed for defense? And I would say they don't need to speed up courts. I think they need to speed up the ball. Right. And the women's game is uses a lighter ball, and I think it's really good. Now, I don't know if it would turn into an ace fest. Maybe they know more than I do on that. Um, if they gave the men the women's ball. But I think the level of offense allowed for the women's game at the U.S. Open is great. And even this year's U.S. Open didn't seem paralyzingly slow. I think that Nadal... 
made those courts look fast with how he won that tournament. It's a very different style of play he won the tournament with than what he did in 2010. Definitely agree. I mean, I don't think that they need to speed up the courts. I think that it's a ball issue. And I think that, you know, just, I don't know. I mean, I, I obviously a lot was made, not a lot, but some was made in this tournament about kind of the different balls that the guys and the, the girls used. And, and I think Anna Ivanovich sent out, sent out a tweet with like a picture of the guy's ball and, and the women's ball and, and, you know, all that sort of stuff to kind of trigger some sort of kind of reporting about the differences in the balls and I kind of didn't love that like I I didn't like this idea of like the girls play with like a different ball to like augment their game and make it quicker or whatever like I there is a part of me that just kind of wishes there's a tennis ball go play with it and both you guys and you girls and you play with the same one I kind of wish that that was the case but obviously it's not but yeah I, I felt the same way as you Ben I, I really didn't feel like it was slow this year no I didn't either I, I think that I'm not sure if they've always played with the same ball or not I don't know the history of it I know that Andy Roddick was saying that last year at the US Open he was playing once and was got balls from a ball kid to you know looked to serve and he looked down and saw that one of them was a women's ball it was like oh that's not supposed to be there and thought about serving with it because it would have been lighter and easier to hit an ace with or something but eventually his better angels prevailed and he didn't do it but yeah i think that it'd be cool to see experimentation on that and to see how different it would be and if it leads to it being like a total ace fest and no rallies i don't want that either there has to be a happy medium somewhere i thought this year was i thought this year was a happy medium totally agree totally agree maybe it was the weather because it was like heavier like it was really muggy in new york this year yeah it was kind of gross and the wind didn't help either so yeah i agree i don't know i think those are all good things that's it for our questions okay well done us yay last sort of topic did you have any favorite like u.s open moments from this tournament you'll remember or things that might have happened behind the scenes or somewhere that people weren't looking that you you liked from this tournament i mean it's not really one that i like but probably the most memorable moment will be for me having to sit through Andrea Petkovic's really tearful post-loss press conference. Oh, I wasn't there for that. Tell, tell people about what happened there. Yeah, no, it was just pretty rough. I mean, obviously she had lost in three sets to Bojana Jovanovski. Great opportunity for her and just really couldn't unlock her game in any way. And, you know, they had announced her press and she wasn't in main press. She was in a secondary room, which meant that there was no transcription. And so I ran down to the room to just ask her a few English questions. And I got there first. And I walked into this like pretty tiny room and she's kind of sitting there and her eyes are like puffy and red and she's kind of sniffling and I'm like the first person there and I I just kind of don't even know what to say, you know, because it's like you've obviously had conversations with this person before. So if they had won, you'd be like, hey, what's up? Like, how's it going? But in this situation, that felt really inappropriate. So I just kind of like walked in and kind of just waved and sat down. And it was tough to kind of just like hear her talk through, you know, why she felt that she lost the match, just kind of how disappointed she was and just really choking through a lot of answers was was kind of a bummer. And it, it came so early in the tournament that I just remember that day really coming away from the tournament, just remembering and, and or I guess being reminded of the fact that this is a really brutal sport, you know, like, yeah. Two weeks ago, I was talking to her and she had just qualified, uh, you know, and, and she was like on cloud nine and so stoked and really, really positive. And then for her to like get main draw into the U.S. Open and lose her first round match, she was absolutely devastated. And that's just kind of, I don't know, that's the brutality of the yeah, sport. Yeah, and she didn't even play that badly. No, I mean, she Yoga really Austin didn't. played really well. And that's, I mean, that's, like you said, it's just a brutal sport in that half the players lose in the first round, like half of them. Yep. And that's a lot of good players sometimes and a lot of players who 
planned this this whole year for them, especially U.S. Open. I feel like people get more emotional about sometimes because it is the last chance of the year. Um, you build up to it. If you lose at Wimbledon, okay, U.S. Open is still coming. It's a long way to Australia after that. And yeah, so I mean that was that was rough. How about you, Ben? My media-wise, I think uh, probably my most memorable thing from this tournament would be the Andy Murray interviews I did. I think I did like this series. People who didn't see series for. The New York Times website called Conversations with Andy Murray, where I was talking to Andy after each of his matches, uh, not his loss. He just left after his loss, which was fine. About so, I did it five times about various topics and just trying to plan for that and talk to him. But mostly, I was just really impressed by how good he was at it. What do you mean? Because that would surprise people. Because everybody, obviously, the narrative on Andy Murray is that he's like this sullen, inarticulate doofus. But explain. But he was so so thoughtful, and I think he's really really good one on one too. Because he's just doesn't like talking to a crowd or feeling like he's being necessarily, I don't know, under Inquisition impressed a lot with the way the stages and the podiums are set up. It's easy to feel that way and the way the British media culture has been his whole life. But I think that, yeah, just getting him one-on-one, like standing in a hallway talking, occasionally putting a CBS montage doing that, which was ridiculous. But yeah, but just getting to do that was really cool. And the way that he was willing to talk about issues, about like equal pay or about uh, steroid stuff was just really... I was impressed, and I don't think there are many other top four guys who would be, or top players on either side, who would be that direct and thorough about those issues. I was I was impressed, and it was it was kind of a challenge coming up with, like, worthy topics and planning for each of them, so it was a lot to add on to my schedule this tournament, which was already sort of full, but it was it was a lot of fun, and it was something I would love to do again sometime with somebody, especially him. So I, w- I would, if you haven't seen those, I'd uh, just think they're... they're Good, quick reading, I think, and it was fun. So Agreed. that's what I remember. Look just, them up. They're good. Yeah. And then, yeah, just waiting for, like, knowing how much press Andy does, because that was the last thing he did every day, was that mm-hmm. thing. So he would do, every day would do, like, a long press conference, then, like, BBC Radio, and then, like, two or three different local BBC affiliate TV stations, like BBC Scotland and maybe something else, and then a different print interview with some British paper, and then it'd be me. So it's just, it was like at the end of the rope for him, and he was always, never seemed exhausted or dismissive of it. So anyway, I thought it was fun. So that, that was basically, that's basically it for that. And then anything else happened? No, not really. <laughs> Fair after, enough. after you left, after you left, they gave away hoodies, Courtney. You would have liked the hoodies. What do the hoodies oh, look yeah. like? I don't need they more can't... hoodies. Let alone tournament in, swag, but they came in like grayish blue <gasps> or or like this sort of like grayish maroon color. Okay, but like, what did they say? They just said U.S. Open on the front. On the front, and it's a full zip. Full zip. So it says like U.S. O. and then pen. No, no, no. It's not like a varsity style. It's just like a one on one, uh, like a pocket where the pocket would be Intriguing. on like a dress shirt. It's like just as US Open. Maybe it might have the little like ball logo there too, but it's like all in white ink or white uh, embroidery. See, I think this is totally baloney because if you were going to give away tournament swag, you should give it in the first week and not the second week because in the second week is where everybody comes who like didn't do the hard work through the first week and they just show up and they go to the quarters and the semis and the final and they do a little write up and whoop de doo But like there are some people like myself who like show up <laughs> from like, you know, three days in advance and they're trying to like write about your tournament 
from like the very very get go and like you know trying to find those stories that are interesting and 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 you know watch the matches that like nobody's watching and and to you know kind of make your tournament float through the first week and you don't give us freaking hoodies what is that they should definitely do it like, like Wimbledon Australia style does it, and Australia where like, they just give it to you when you walk yeah, in the door you check in you're exactly you check in at the Australian Open they give you your bag of swag you check in at the at, at Wimbledon they give you your little laptop bag that I now have like five of them because who goes through a laptop bag every year? Like, not me. <laughs> like, they don't go bad. So now I have, like, like literally, like, four Wimbledon laptop bags, and I don't even use laptop bags. So if anybody wants one, let me know. Yeah, I don't I don't, I don't understand the whole... I, I almost feel like they wait until the second week to, like, figure out what they have in overstock to give to media, and then they decide <laughs> to give that to media. It was really funny, though, because it got cold the very first night they gave them away. <laughs> And so, like, literally, like, 60% of the media room is all wearing their hoodies. Nice. It looked like people were suddenly, like, cult members. So it was kind of of funny. Yeah, so that was, so basically, moral of the story is, don't leave early, Courtney. You know what? I don't regret it. I will be honest. You were missed. You were. I don't think that I was missed, but I genuinely do not regret it. I left on on Monday morning of the second week and was in D.C. for a couple of days to watch some women's soccer. And then I flew home and have been kind of covering things from my own the comfort of my own bed which has been awesome and i adore you ben but i really didn't need to hear your alarm clock ever again so it worked Fair. out really really well for me how was the coverage how was watching it on tv how was how did oh, CBS it was and ESPN yeah do it? i mean it was different i mean it was just i mean a because of the way that my setup is like i have my office which is where i generally work because i have like multiple screens but that would mean that i was streaming so a lot of times i wasn't actually tuned into like the espn or cbs coverage i was actually into the world feed or eurosport so that was fine but you know, I mean, anytime you, that you cover a tournament and you're not on site, you don't really... It, it, I was definitely more, like, hesitant to kind of make a determination as to what the vibe was about a match or what people thought about a match or, like, something like that. Because I just, I just wasn't around it. I, you know, I was in my own little bubble. But at the same time, that kind of gave me a freedom to kind of not be influenced by you know, the chatter in the media room or, you know, colleagues that you like totally respect telling you what they think. And you're like, oh, yeah, no, that's totally right. And so I just kind of really felt like I was free to kind of come up with my own takes on matches and storylines. So that was quite good. One vibe in the media room that you missed, I think, was when Federer lost. It was like a funeral. People were so sad. As he was losing, people were like, there was like, like gasps every time he hit one of these terrible errors. People were like, oh, this is so sad. I don't like seeing him like this. And then there were like, 40 articles written about, like, the demise of Federer. Okay. For, like, days later. I I would not be able to deal with that. I'm surprised you even dealt with it, even from afar. Yeah, There were so many articles that came out about Federer. Well, especially because that day because Federer played that Monday night that I left so I I had left or I guess I had left Sunday I had left Sunday maybe that's right yeah Yeah. so I left Sunday and then he played Monday night and one of the big issues that I had personally was I did I hadn't actually booked a flight home yet so there was a part of me that thought well if Federer and Nadal actually play in the quarters and I'll actually go back to New York to cover that match but if that happens and I cover that match I basically lose any window to fly home because the next day would be, you know, the women's, what was it, semis, I think. And then it just would like kind of keep going. And I I just wouldn't have a window to fly home from the East Coast to where I was online and available to blog. So 
when he lost, I just was like, oh, okay, well, then that means that I don't have to go back to New York and I can book my flight and I can get home and all these sorts of things. So I was like super kind of <laughs> like ridiculously detached from it <laughs> to where I just kind of didn't really get why everybody was freaking out because watching the match, it just all of it seemed I- inevitable. But then obviously, yeah, like you said, I read a lot of the stuff that was coming out afterwards and everybody was freaking out. And I think Steve Tigner had like a great piece on the reactions to the reactions where he was saying that like when Federer loses, like smart people cry effectively. Like that was what the press room was. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like people who watch tennis from a very intellectual level get really, really sad and since I don't watch tennis from an intellectual level, like, I don't get that. But I see it. Yeah. You know, so. That totally makes sense. It was a, um, it was an odd atmosphere. And just the whole, yeah, the whole tournament was not one that we remembered for much, I don't think. No. I was going to say, like, it, it was a bit of a forgetful one, no? No, it's definitely started out that way. I think, like I said, the finals were both pretty good. Both uh, were entertaining, at least, to watch, if not memorable classics. But yeah, this will not be... The best slam. Question for you then. What was the best slam of the year? It's actually oh, a hard question now that I think about it's it. It's a hard question. <laughs> because I'm a jerk, I'm going to say Wimbledon. I think you're probably right. Like, just the absolute chaos and the inability to track stories. But at the end of the day, like, Andy Murray won Wimbledon. Like, that in and of itself is, like, a ginormous story. And then yeah, forget Andy Murray. It was all about Bartoli. <laughs> and I then Bar- Marion Bartoli was Marion Bartoli. Right. I mean, I think that... I think I would agree with that because Wimbledon was definitely like compelling or like you don't know what's going to happen next Wimbledon, at least on the women's side for sure. And no other slam matched that. I mean, Azarenka was number one and defending champion at one Australia. Serena was number one, overwhelming favorite and won the French. Same thing at the US Open. Yeah. Australia, the number ones, uh, the number ones won. Yeah. Defending champions both. Yep. And totally, totally agree with that. Rafa winning the French was not anything remarkable, really. Yeah. And the final against Freire was awful. Yep. Yeah, I totally, totally when agree. Dude, I think it was definitely Wimbledon. Yeah, when a dude breaching security to run onto your court and light, like, fireworks or flares is, like, the most oh, exciting... weird. The most exciting thing that happened in your match, it wasn't a very exciting match. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. That's a fair statement. Yeah, so no, I would say, I would definitely say Wimbledon. But like, what do you think is going to be, is there anything that we can take away from the U.S. Open? In terms of what? I don't know. Like, like what was the point of the last two weeks? How about that? Best point? No, what was the point? What was was the purpose of these last two weeks other than to sweat in New York humidity and to put on an event because we are scheduled to put on an event? You know? Yeah, I think that's a very essential question about tennis. But I think that basically this was just two all-time grades. Maybe the best, maybe people who we look at the best ever when all is said and done. And Serena and Rafa, this was just them adding to their tally. You know, it was them sort of going through the motions a little bit and putting another trophy in their big shopping carts of trophies. And that's fine. I don't know if it doesn't has a point per se, the way that... Bartoli winning has a point, but or Murray winning has a point at Wimbledon. But yeah, I think it was um I think it happened. <laughs> the US Open happened, you guys. And, and I guess we'll just leave it at that. This show happened too. I think this is probably part B of this episode fifty five. We talked quite a bit, but we can just base some out because we didn't have a show last week uh, because we were traveling and kind of aforementioned business. Yeah. But thanks for listening, folks. If you enjoy the show, please Leave us a review on iTunes. We like those. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our username on Twitter there is at NCR underscore tennis. 
You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. You can follow both of us individually on Twitter as well if you don't already. I'm Ben Rothenberg. She's 40 deuce twits. Together we are the show, etc. Yeah. Word. That's about it. <laughs> it's, it's like 3.40 a.m. here. I'm sort of running out of gas. Yeah, but, I was going to uh, say, Ben's been working it, so you get yourself to bed, Rothenberg. I'll try. Good night, world. Night, y'all. Out of gas, out of road, out of car, don't know how I'm gonna go in. I had a drink the other day. Opinions were like kittens, I was giving them away.